welcome to Alumni Voices, a podcast series from Oxford University. I'm Paul Hammond-Davies, and every month I speak to a former student about their days at Oxford and the impact of their studies upon their career. For this episode, I'm joined by Patrick Grant, an award-winning fashion designer and judge on the BBC series The Great British Sewing Bee. Patrick graduated with an MBA from Oxford University and during his studies bought Savile Row bespoke tailor Norton & Sons, quickly turning the business around into a successful company. In 2010, he was awarded the British Fashion Council's Menswear Designer of the Year Award after relaunching eTorts & Sons and was a recipient of the 2015 BFC GQ Designer Menswear Fund. He is also Creative Director for Hammond & Co, a diffusion line available at Debenhams and recently launched a social enterprise, Community Clothing. I interviewed Patrick at his tailor's Norton & Sons, so do excuse some of the background noise. I started by asking about how different it was being a bit older and more experienced as a student while studying for the Executive MBA at Oxford's Side Business School. Well, I think amongst my cohort, I was actually relatively young. We, we were the first cohort of Exec MBAs and I think the oldest student was in his 60s. So we were a more mature bunch. I think amongst the rest of the business school, I was probably sort of average age. I mean, the, the, the MBA programme attracts people who've been to work, gathered some experience, and then recognised the need for something extra. But obviously amongst my college friends, I was quite a bit <laughs> older. So I, you know, I got quite stuck into college life. And I, you know, I played rugby for a new college amongst you know guys who were you know, 18 and straight out of school mm-hmm. I did cross country and and athletics the university I did modern pentathlon again most of the people that I did that with were undergrads and it was great it was really refreshing it's 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 invigorating being around smart young people mm-hmm. you step out of work and you give yourself time to to reflect and to learn and to think and all of that stuff it changes your entire outlook on what is possible in life and what is possible with your own skills and aptitudes. And, um, you know, it was, it was just an enormously refreshing experience. For those people who don't know, the, the executive MBA happens in kind of one-week tranches, and it's quite a packed programme. Yeah. So how did you balance the academic programme with the membership at New College and actually experiencing um, what college is like? Well, I, I, I just, you know, I'm, I've, I've always worked quite hard and I don't mind a long week. There was so much good stuff to do at college. You know, we had you know, wonderful formal dinners, exchanged dinners with other colleges, built the sets for the, for the MCR play. There was always, I don't know, what else did we do? Sw- cuppers swimming, cuppers mixed sevens. You know, I, I, I basically threw myself into all of the non-academic side of college life. And, you know, that part was as much part of the reason I loved my experience at Oxford as the academic experience, which, of course, was extraordinary. But I don't think I did balance it. I just stuffed it all in. And was it the college system that particularly attracted you to Oxford to do your MBA? Well, I only applied to two schools. The other was LBS, and I was lucky to be accepted in both. Whilst both are academically excellent, Oxford offers everything else that you know you would wish for in a you know in a university experience. I mean, firstly, it is beautiful and and wonderful, and you are surrounded by a thousand years of extraordinary achievement, uh, both academic and non-academic. And the, the experience of being a student in a, in a postgraduate common room 
in Oxford is, is quite unparalleled. You are surrounded by people who are going to be shaping the future in all sorts of extraordinary ways. LBS is a great business school, but Oxford is the best university in the world. And, you know, I was surrounded by people doing extraordinary things in all sorts of extraordinary fields, from medicine to literature to history to, you know, and, and, and living in a college that was... 700 years old with the you know the original wall of the town of Oxford running right mm. through the middle of it and you know you can't beat that there is no experience like it I don't believe anywhere else in terms of the MBA program itself what were the most important things that you learned in terms of what you've gone on to do well I think more than anything what the the, the, the MBA gives you confidence I mean you you learn you 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 work hard and you learn a lot. You study a lot. You look at a lot of history. You learn everything through, through a balance of theory and practical experience. So we spend a huge amount of time looking at what other businesses have done during extraordinarily good periods and extraordinarily bad periods. And, 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 and you know, and, and if you work hard and 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 read everything you should read and think about it then it's almost as if you have lived through the best and worst and most exciting times of you know, a huge array of extraordinary businesses. You, you sort of absorb that experience despite not having actually done it. And we, we have a cohort who are experienced, smart business people from all sorts of different backgrounds. I mean, what I came away with was a, was a confidence that actually I knew a lot more about how this works than, than maybe I thought I did. And that confidence is absolutely required for, for, for doing things on your own. You know, starting your own business and running it requires skill, but it also requires, a, a, you know, an amount of confidence that you're going to make it work. So we're sat in Norting and Sons at the moment. During your time at Oxford, the opportunity came up to, to actually buy this business, and it was on the brink of bankruptcy at the time. Yeah. So why was this something you felt you needed to pursue? I, I, I really simply, I fell in love with it. So I, I've, I've told this story often. I was supposed to have lunch with a, a very good friend of mine, who's still a very good friend of mine, um, who was also on the MBA programme at a year behind me. And... Uh, he basically stood me up. The, it was quite late. The only newspaper left in college was an FT, which I don't normally, I mean, despite doing business, I didn't normally read mm-hmm. on a regular basis. There was nobody left in the dining hall that I knew. And so I sat on my own and read it whilst I ate my lunch. And I got to the back and in the businesses for sale section, which was a section that I wouldn't normally even look at, mm. Just because I, I, think, I mean, I think I had a piece of work that I had to do, and I thought maybe an acquisition would make an interesting case. So I looked, and in amongst all the other businesses was this tiny little postage stamp-sized advert that said, you know, for sale, tailors to kings, emperors, and presidents. Please write to Mr. N. Granger at 16 Savile Road. No email address, no phone number, nothing you know, as technologically advanced as that. But I thought, oh my God, I mean, how can this be? This is a, you know, 200-year-old storied tailoring house Mm. uh, on the world's most famous tailoring street, you know, was on its uppers. And, you know, he sent me the the memorandum of information, which, I mean, was, was, was sort of cobbled together and, you know, in a sort of clip art and... Sort of PowerPointy kind of way, but amongst it, you got the sense that here was something extraordinary and special and sort of unsullied. And despite having no experience in, in working in tailoring, I had always loved clothes, loved tailored clothes particularly. And you know, from in my sort of mid-teens, I would always wear my dad's sort of beautifully cut sort of sixties suits mm. and 
Uh, and I'd loved fashion forever. You know, the walls of my dorm, you know, my room at school, my cubicle in my dorm, all of that was always pages from Vogue and Elle. And, and I couldn't believe it. You know, it was in a poor state. When I came to see it, I looked around and I thought, there is almost nothing here that I couldn't improve. Apart mm. from the tailoring, you know, which ultimately was the most important thing, that bit was was still being done brilliantly but everything else that surrounded it was in a pretty bad state and just needed TLC and 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 energy and enthusiasm and maybe a little bit of skill it felt to me that at that moment in time there was you know the the sort of winds were changing and people were going away from loving big sort of sexy shiny global brands back to um a love of smaller, more precious, more crafted products from brands that stood for something really special. And, mm. and Nautland Sons absolutely fit that bill. And on top of all this, you are a judge on the BBC's Great British Sewing Bee. So what attracted you to being a judge on that programme and how does that fit in with everything else that you do? Well, really simply, you know, I have a great belief that we, we have an opportunity in this country to rebuild to a certain extent, our textile and, and garment making industry. And when they approached me about doing sewing bee, I thought professional sewing requires great sewers. Mm. And great sewers usually come from people that have sewn a lot at home. 50 years ago, most, most people would have uh, learned to sew at school and then would have had the experience. And then if they wanted to go into professional sewing, they would have come with the basics. I felt this was an opportunity to sort of reinvigorate sewing at home in the same way that other shows have reinvigorated other things like baking mm -hmm. at home and I think it's been proven to be absolutely the case you know we're over over a million sewing machines have been sold since sewing bee first aired um, you know normally it would have been about a hundred thousand sewing machines a year I think we've topped and we've sort of tripled that number so a huge number of people have come back into sewing and many of those have started businesses in sewing and that can only be good for the future of my industry, uh, which I do believe has a good future. And, uh, you it know. also sounded like a lot of fun, <laughs> <laughs> which is another big reason for doing it and it has been. Well, and a slightly related question, we do live in an age of celebrity and social media, so how closely do you think your profile and personal brand are to the success of the companies that you run? Well, I think uh, almost certainly Sewing Bee has had a very positive effect on the, the success of Hammond & Co, which is a brand that I sell exclusively through Debenhams worldwide. The, the, success of, the success of Hammond & Co, I think, must be linked to the extraordinary success of the show. I think, you know, I have been fortunate to win various prizes in men's fashion. I, you know, I won the Menswear Designer of the Year Award in 2010, which is the, you know, the sort of Oscars of our industry. It doesn't get any better than that. But, you know, I think at that point, outside of fashion, I was probably known by about four people. Obviously, you know, when you're doing a big collection with a huge department store like Debenhams, it helps that you're well known. Mm. And people walk into Debenhams and they recognise me from, from, from Sewing Bee. I mean, Sewing Bee, at, at its peak, has had nearly four million viewers. And, you know, consistently in this last series, over three million. Mm. It's been extraordinarily successful. And I, I would be really naive to think that it hasn't had a positive effect on, on the Hamilton Co brand. So you recently launched a new social enterprise, Community Clothing, which aims to boost British business by making affordable clothes during less busy times at British factories. What prompted you to start this venture and, and what are your goals? 
So when we when we started eTorts, which we we we, re, we relaunched it in two thousand and nine, we had the goal of making all of our product in the UK where there were good factories that could do it. And I think probably to date we've made about ninety five percent of everything that bears the eTorts label in British factories. Now, um, having spent all of that time with all of those factories, it, is, it has always been clear to me that there have been seasonal ups and downs. And all of the factories that we deal with constantly trying to find ways to get you to make in the, you know, in the sort of fallow periods. Mm-hmm. But that's not how the fashion industry works. We have two seasons, mm-hmm. you know, and we design, show, sell, and then manufacture and deliver on a very specific timetable. And it means that everybody wants to manufacture their stuff at the same time. We all want to deliver our spring collections, as weird as this sounds. Spring collections we want to deliver in December, and winter collections we want to deliver in June. That's how it works, which means all the factories have to do all the production. You know, in an ideal world, there would be a sort of infinitely expandable capacity mm. that would allow for everything to be made in those two months, because that's when everybody wants it. And then for the rest of the year, you know, there would be nothing at all. You would collapse that capacity to zero. Mm-hmm. But of course, you can't do that. And this spare capacity that exists between those two peak seasons is a huge problem, because if you are a, a manufacturer, you don't want to lay your workforce off. Mm. There's a certain amount of business that you can fill the gap with. And, you know, we would do certain brands, you know, so we're making premium jeans for certain people, which is more of a continuity product. You sort of deliver it throughout the year as and when they're required. But still the bulk of it is is these two seasonal collections. And if you can't fix that problem, you you have an economic situation that just doesn't work. So you either have to lay your staff off and then try and rehire them, or you have to accept that for, for long periods of the year, you're really going to be just paying people's wages to do nothing. Mm. And it is knackering otherwise brilliant businesses. And, you know, almost without exception, our suppliers all face the same issue. And when I took over Cookson & Clegg, which has, you know, which is a sort of outerwear and legwear manufacturer, ex-manufacturer for the British Army, which is where most of its business used to be, they had this huge seasonal issue. So very busy for three months, very quiet for three months, and then the cycle repeats itself. So this seasonality of demand is a huge issue for British factories. And it's far worse for British factories than it is for those in the Far East because the British factories are mostly only working for premium brands. And those premium brands tend to be much more seasonal than, than you know, if you look at the bigger sort of high street multiples there, you know, many of them are delivering things every couple of weeks. In fact, big online businesses are delivering every week. So there's a huge problem there. I think there's a great future for these businesses because they make a brilliant, brilliant product. And it's a product that, you know, I think people in Britain would like to buy British made goods. But the problem is many of them cannot afford them because most of these British goods are sold through premium brands. And so we decided, I looked at this and I thought, well, look, it's daft. You've got spare capacity here and you've got a massive underserved demand, albeit at a price that, you know, most of the British brands can't sell at. So why not just just connect the two directly? Mm -hmm. So the whole idea of community clothing is that we designed a very simple, brilliantly sort of cost engineered, pure everyday utility clothing line really lovely simple staples white t-shirts crew neck and v-neck jumpers chinos pea coats beautiful simple shirts for women and men jeans for women and men just the everyday stuff that a big store like Marks and spencers probably used to do really well 30 years ago mm. the, you know you knew you could go in there and buy 
brilliant quality, amazing lambswool knitwear that was made in a fantastic mill in the UK and you knew it would last for 20 years. Doesn't happen anymore. But those those mills are still there. The people's, you know, and they're crying out for stuff to do. So we've designed this range that is, because it is, it will not change from season to season. We're not going to redesign it every year. You know, we're doing it in very simple colours. Everything is ready to go. So when the big seasonal period ends, mm. the factories can start making for community clothing and we sell it directly. So the way it works is that we, in order to make it affordable, essentially we, we, community clothing is, is a sort of cooperative. Uh, and so we sell it really pretty much directly from the factory to the consumer. So we cut out the wholesale mm. markup and we cut out the retail markup. So all of a sudden, amazing quality British clothes are affordable to everyone. And everyone can play their part in sustaining and creating British jobs. And the way people can buy these clothes, largely through eBay? Online? At the moment, only through eBay. I mean, please, if, if anybody is interested, communityclothing.co.uk has all the information. Obviously, we have Twitter and Facebook and uh, Instagram. You know, we're trying to push the money back into those communities. So any money that we do make... 75% of it, we, as a minimum, we have to put back into the programmes uh, you know, that, that are helping develop skills and employability in the towns where the factories are. And one final question, what advice would you have to any young entrepreneurs or designers currently thinking about starting a business in this industry? I think fundamentally and most importantly, you have to really love the, the, the business that you're going to go into because you're going to have to basically sacrifice almost everything else in your life <laughs> for it. So be like be 100% committed to it, love it, want to live and breathe it and know it. You need to know it intimately. I mean, you have to understand it. The great part of, uh, one of the great parts of being at Oxford University was that I had access to the most extraordinary library facility in the world, I suspect. And I read every article that contained the phrase Savile Row written in English from about 1964 onwards, many of which were nothing to do with tailoring, by the way. But know it, know it so well that nobody can, you know, can ever better your knowledge of it. And I think also you just have to be prepared for an extraordinary, physically demanding and emotionally and mentally demanding. It is going to be long and relentless and the person that is going to have to pick up every piece and, and, and the person who is going to have to motivate everybody when things inevitably go wrong and things will always go wrong whether you know it's a cash flow thing or a product failure or something you know something in the business will always happen you learn that stuff goes wrong in businesses and somebody has to say right okay well we're going to fix it and that person in a small business is always you and you need to be prepared for that because it is hard work but it's great if you would like to listen to other episodes of alumni voices please visit www.alumni.ox.ac.com dot uk. Okay.